Um, so this is a pretty big task. We uh, usually generate a lot of questions about it. I'm gonna go ahead and get started then. So welcome everyone. So it is my pleasure that I get to introduce you all uh, in two lectures that'll be back to back to all of innate immunity. Um, so this is a pretty big task. We uh, usually generate a lot of questions about it and I'm happy to answer those both during the break and I have uh, periodically uh, inserted slides where we can have a small discussion. I'm hoping that will work through this Zoom format. Um, I'm not quite the master that Shiv is, but I hope this will work out. Um, so my name is Stephanie Eisenbarth. I'm at Yale University and um, I've been part of the focus course for a number of years. It's an amazing course. I'm glad you are all joining us. Um, so I put together a, a packet of slides for these two lectures trying to hit the highlights of innate immunity. Obviously, it's a very big topic, so it's not possible to cover really in great depth every single aspect that we really would like to. But what I've done is you will get access to the slides. There are some hidden slides that I won't have time to go through in the lecture, but you can look at. Um, and then I also have references, usually on the bottom left or right corner. So if you wanted to read more about, for example, Sting or something else that I tend to get a lot of questions on, there's some references you can look up. All right, so I'm gonna go ahead and get started. So in terms of just setting the stage of understanding innate immunity, um, this is how I visualize it. And this, I made this slide far before we had COVID, but this is probably a good example of what we all think about these days. Um, but you really think of the innate immune system as your first line of defense, really just stopping before anything can get started um, in terms of infection or hopefully any other dysregulation. Um, but to try to be a little bit more um, granular about what we mean when we talk about innate immunity, I'm going to go through this uh, in details in categories. And so as you saw, one half of the lectures will be about the cells and one half will be about the molecules, again, hitting the highlights. But what you can see here is probably one of the most important first lines of defense in the innate immune system is actually just the barrier that's put up between us and the outside world. And that's at the level of the skin and at the level of your mucosa. You have all sorts of molecules that are either forming tight junctions that really physically act like a wall to other things that are molecules that are present or even um, like uh, mucus type molecules that really block things from outside getting in. So that's a very important first line of defense. But obviously, as we know, lots of things still get past those. And when they do, then you have a second layer of defense that I would categorize as some of these type molecules that we will go through in detail um, through the course of these two lectures. This is everything from uh, molecules like complement to different types of cells. And we will touch on some of these in my lecture and some will be touched on in other lectures as well. And then if the, all that fails and your innate immune system really can't hold back that tide of whatever's trying to get in, then you need to call in the big guns. And I think of these as the lymphocytes, so the adaptive immune system. So we think of these as B cells and different types of T cells. And these cells are exquisitely powerful and quite um, specific in terms of what they target, but they take time to get activated and they can misfire. And when they misfire, we think of diseases like autoimmunity or allergy, which you'll be hearing a lot about during the course of these lectures. So they're not something that you wanna bring in for every type of infection and actually probably for the majority of things that do get through that very first layer of barrier type defense, the innate immune system is perfectly capable of handling it. And you don't need to call in these big guns. The, the adaptive immune system. But we will talk also about how the innate immune system 
really is the gatekeeper as well for that second line of defense, the adaptive immune system. And so the two real take home points, if you will, about the innate immune system that's important to keep in mind is first that the innate immune system is really fast. It's essentially immediate. So as soon as something has broken through that barrier, it's there to protect you. And then the second part of it is that this arm of the immune system, this innate immune is really the, like I said, the gatekeeper for the adaptive, the slow responders. All right, so this is a really beautiful pictorial, but obviously just incomplete, but high level view of how we would somewhat artificially uh, designate what's innate and what's an adaptive immune system. There's obviously hybrid things and there's obviously also communication back and forth. And like I said, we'll be touching on the things in this purple sphere today. So again, some basic principles to remember about the innate immune system. The first is that it is immediate. It doesn't require pre-exposure. So this is built into your genetics. So you have these molecules and cells hardwired to respond. Um, it also means that there's not potentially memory. And I will put, I have an asterisk there because there is a form of innate immunity called trained immunity that other um, lecturers might touch on. And it's just a different type of memory than what we think about when we think of a T cell or a B cell that is long lived and is producing a response potentially for life. Um, and I won't really touch on that too much today. It is the, the ancient arm of the immune system. So this evolved long before adaptive immunity. Um, and as I've already mentioned, um, these really are hardwired into your genome. So the receptors, for example, that we'll talk about are in your are germline, meaning and, and in contrast to what we think about with the receptors that are in the T and B cell lineages. So these cells can mutate, they can um, cut and paste back together their receptors as you'll hear about and really become infinite in the what they can recognize. That's not true in the innate immune system. These are really germline. They've been selected over time through evolution and um, are not mutable in that way. And importantly then, this um, evolution that I just mentioned really has led to a kind of fine-tuned set of receptors and molecules that recognize structures that are shared by large classes of microbes in particular, and really help us distinguish what's self, meaning what's in your uh, own body and therefore hopefully um, safe, versus what's non-self and potentially foreign. And so again, that's somewhat hardwired into our immune system in this way through the receptors of the innate immune system. And I'll, I'll come back to this point as we keep going. So I'm gonna just start with a question that we will come back to at the very end of this first lecture. Um, and I just want you to be thinking about it, kind of mulling it over as we go through some, some of these molecules that are part of the innate immune system. So what non-self patterns, um, and so you'll hear that term pattern a lot, and I'll explain what I mean in a minute, are detected during a listeria infection. So I'm just giving you one classic example of a bacteria that can infect us and cause disease. What would be the molecules of the listeria or potentially the molecules that listeria helps generate in your own body that help us detect that listeria has infected us. So we'll, we'll touch on that at the very end. So let's start in. So part one, in terms of the molecules, we'll, we'll talk about pattern recognition receptors. So I told you I would um, define that. So remember I said at the very beginning that our immune system has evolved to recognize things that are not self, they're foreign. And they're also things that are potentially conserved across large um, groups of microbes. So these are patterns on the surface or inside different types of pathogens. I think a really great example is lipopolysaccharide. It's part of the um, 
uh, coating the cell wall of gram-negative bacteria, and it's on essentially almost all gram-negative bacteria. So it's a very powerful thing to detect. The other thing that makes it so powerful is that we, as humans, do not make lipopolysaccharides, so it's not a self-molecule. So that's how we start thinking about these receptors, for example, toll-like receptors that recognize these patterns. We'll go into them in more depth in a, in a minute. But there's all sorts of examples of this. I've just given you one. So here's some of the receptors, like toll-like receptors. We'll also touch on nod-like receptors, Rigai-like receptors, DNA sensors, and C-type lectin receptors. They all recognize different types of patterns across, across different types of microbes. But in addition, there's a number of plasma proteins that, again, are circulating. These don't have to be cell surface molecules that are also capable of detecting when something is foreign or damaged. And so we will start by talking about complement, a very powerful set of plasma proteins that helps us um, from that very second of invasion to defend. And so again, so this question is an intermediate question. I will ask it and then I'll come back to it in just a couple of slides. So start thinking about this one now. Um, complement is an incredibly powerful system, which I'll define in the next couple of slides. But think about diseases that are caused by complement activity, either underactivity, meaning if you don't have enough complement, um, what kind of diseases are you susceptible to, or overactivity, meaning when complement is inappropriately activated, what kind of diseases does it induce? Okay, so very quickly, definition of complement. And complement is one of those things in the immune um, lectures that I think um, students often uh, groan about. It's hard because it's a whole list, uh, not in order, uh, any numerical order, of molecules. And I don't think you need to memorize the, the sequence of events in complement. I think there's a few key principles you should know and remember. And from there, you can always go back and look it up online. It's pretty easy to, to find it. So these are circulating inactive serine protease enzymes. And so that's part of this nomenclature of the numbering. Um, and what happens is you get a cascade of sequential activation. But I think the important thing to remember is that there's a central uh, molecule, C3, which is worth remembering. Um, C3 is a, a very important complement uh, component that when it gets activated really uh, shoots off the whole complement cascade. And there's a number of different complement molecules. We'll touch on some of them that activate C3. Again, they have somewhat random numbers and names, and those are somewhat more difficult to remember. But I think C3 as a central molecule in the complement cascade is worth remembering. And often when complement molecules are turned from an inactive to an active enzyme, they then have a new nomenclature. And that goes from C3 molecule, for example, to C3B and C3A. These are two fragments, and they each have their own function um, as active complement fragments now. One of the main principles that's very important to understand about complement is that there's many ways of activating it. Um, and so I think in this really nice image um, from the textbook that many of the originators of this uh, course have written are three of the basic principles. I think the one we all think about is this one, the classical pathway. So this is where you've generated an antibody here depicted as IgM binding to a you know, target antigen on your bacterium. And then that triggers the complement cascade. Of course, that does require uh, an IgM antibody. And there's many ways of getting IgM that might not require that long uh, term, slow response that I mentioned. But in general, this is maybe um, 
a way of having preformed immunity after you've already had exposure, for example, and had an adaptive immune response. But there's ways of activating complement without antibodies as well. And that's the alternative pathway and the lectin pathway. And I'll come back to exactly how these work in the next slide. So all of these come through this central uh, C3 molecule, as I mentioned. It's actually in complex, often these complement molecules act together. And then it becomes really a laundry list of different numbers and, and letters. But once it's activated, what you do is a number of different things in the body that's important for the immune system to protect you. One is opsonization and phagocytosis. So the C3B molecule can coat different types of pathogens and, and target it and mark it essentially as bad or foreign. And then different types of cells in the immune system can come and eat it. And that's what, um, phagos that, obviously that would be phagocytosis and that's what we mean by opsonization. They've been marked. Um, but the molecules can also do other things C3A and C5A, these small molecules here that are, again, components of the originating, originating complement molecule can induce inflammation. And that inflammation recruits in other um, cells of the immune system, in particular innate immune cells, to come in and help clear up what's going on. And then finally, and I think this is what people typically think about when they think about complement, this C5 molecule, um, and this one's easy to remember, so I usually recommend just remembering this part, C5 then leads to 6, 7, 8, 9, and you get this what's called a MAC, a membrane attack complex. It literally just punches a hole in the membrane. That membrane can be your own cell or it can be a bacterium, right? So this is where where complement can be dangerous. But what that does obviously is then kill whatever, it's just punched a, a hole in. Okay, so one more slide just talking about initiation. So remember I said there's ways of detecting um, a bacterium, for example, that's been bound by IgM. Uh, that can be done through the C1Q molecule. And what it's doing is initiating the classical pathway of complement activation. And again, it's finding things that have been tagged in this way, for example, here by IgM. It's one of the ways of clearing something, uh, or one of the ways that antibodies can be helpful in clearing a pathogen. So that, I think again is one of the classical ways we think about in terms of complement. But again, there's these other two pathways that don't require adaptive immune system at all to still be functional. And one of them is called the MBL or lectin pathway. And what's important about that through a pretty similar structure is that these molecules that are circulating in your blood can detect something that is foreign through the patterns again that are on the surface of that pathogen. So if you look at this kind of molecule head on, you can see that there's carbohydrate region domains that actually can sense little sugar patterns that are on the surface, for example, of a microbe here. And what's important about those patterns is the patterns of sugars, which are obviously not unique to pathogens. We would have sugars as well on our own cell surface. They're different in terms of the way that they're structured. And so these lectins uh, should not be binding your own self cells. And so that way, these molecules can detect and target for complement activation and therefore killing uh, pathogens. There's multiple molecules in this um, pathway. And again, I'm not going to, the data is here for you to, to think about later. I'm going to go over the basic principles of it. But the final one I want to talk about is the alternative pathway. And this is a very powerful one, but also potentially very dangerous arm of the complement cascade. And that is that actually complement can identify when a, a, a membrane, for example, is not yourself. So how does it do that? It, if, you, if a membrane doesn't have certain off molecules, and this is a theme you'll hear about in other lectures as well, that say I am self, for example, through sialic residues, 
then actually complement can come in and get auto activated and can start the initiation of the complement cascade. And that's called the alternative cascade. Sometimes people mention it as an amplifying uh, mechanism of complement, but it can also trigger um, and needs to be turned off. And that's a very important actual um, thing to understand for multiple disease states. So if it's possible now um, with Andy and Shiv, I'd like to have a small discussion. Whoops, sorry. And I think my question disappeared. Um, but I wanted to have a discussion about what kind of uh, diseases do you think about when you think of either under or overactivity of complement? You want us to have students answer? You want us to yes. Oh, I wanted students to answer if possible. Okay, okay so if you want to answer, please raise your hands. We'll call on you. And also, just so you know, you can put it, I think, in the chat as well. I won't probably be able to see it, but that's why Andy and Shiver here, so they might be able to read it out as well. All right, we have... We have several be, uh, being put in the chat with answers, um, yeah. but we'd like somebody to actually answer. So, okay, that's fine. Andy, you can read them. Okay, so um, we have, um, again, I'm gonna mispronounce names, but I apologize. Anne uh, Marsakal says complement deficiencies. Perfect. Um, Tracy uh, Bonfield says lupus. Great. Uh, Joanna Balsarek says uh, paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. Cassandra Hunter says a question sepsis. Mm. Um, we have lots. We have several more. I, I can keep going. Susan McClory says um, a TMA uh, overactive complement. We'll talk you, about that. Yep. You 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 might you might want to yep. expand on that. Yep. Um, Anne Bolton says. Um, uh, HAE, PND, SLE. Um, I'm going to not. Okay, we'll stop there. Spell those out. Yeah. yeah. So. so, lots and lots of uh, letters being listed. So, let's talk about some of those. That was really great. And maybe, Andy, in the next one, we don't even need to call out names. We could just list some of the. Yeah. As sure. like a more just, we're just trying to throw out some discussion points. And maybe if your discussion point doesn't get answered we, uh, during the QA session at the end, we can come back to it. Um, but you guys listed out a number of really great. Um, uh, options, and I don't have time to go through all of them, but everything I heard was right. And so if it's something of interest, please come back to it. Um, some of them were lots of letters. And I think one of the things as a, a theme to think about is how does complement, overactivity of complement cause multiple different types of diseases? Um, and they're not all listed here. People listed, for example, lupus, right? Um, and that's not on here, but uh, we will come back to lupus later on a little bit. But again, there's diseases like hereditary angioedema, hemolytic uremic syndrome, uh, paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, so these are easier as letters, right, PNH, that are deficiencies in um, molecules of the complement cascade that are off molecules, they're inhibitory molecules. So just like I said, there's an alternative complement cascade that is kind of always going, always ready to go. It also needs kind of constant breaks put onto it. So for example, there's a C1 INH inhibitor that inhibits this molecule that we talked about that triggers the complement cascade. And it has um, some interesting and complex uh, pathophysiology that I won't go into because it's not exactly what we think about with a pure complement um, type response. 
But again, this is a deficiency of one of these inhibitory molecules. Similarly, hemolytic uremic syndrome, or HUS, is another one where you um, either genetically or you can acquire a lack of molecules like factor H and factor I. And these molecules, again, turn off the alternative complement cascade. And when they um, are apparently missing in some way or maybe overwhelmed, you can get what's called TMA. So that's a microangiopathy where you get lots of little um, clots and you get, um, you get damage to your small blood vessels. And it's essentially a dysregulated immune response. Gone, it's, you know, complement gone awry. Um, and HUS is a good example of that. It's not the only example of that. PNH is another good example where you're missing some of these uh, inhibitors, and there, here's two of them listed here, on the surface of your red blood cells. And when you don't have that, your complement system can recognize your own red cells and, and unfortunately destroy them. So all of these lead to inappropriate cell death of your own cell cells rather than a, a pathogen. But as was pointed out, for example, um, there are uh, primary immunodeficiencies that maybe Carrie might touch on, where you're actually lacking some of the complement component, a particular component, and those children can be uh, quite susceptible to particular uh, types of um, usually bacterial infections, because the complement cascade is so important for that first line of defense. All right, I'm not going to have a lot of time to continue this discussion, but I think all of those things you guys brought up were great. I'm going to move now to understanding um, very quickly in one slide some of the brand new therapies that are coming down the pike to actually inhibit complement because of these types of diseases. And so one of them is eculizumab. Um, it's a, a, quite an expensive um, uh, inhibitor of C5. And remember, C5 was that second molecule I said might be worth remembering because it's what it initiates the MAC. Um, and so essentially, like very much a lot of the other immunotherapies that are out there, it was uh, targeted with monoclonal antibodies to try to block a particular immune response. In this case, it's complement. Um, and it's very powerful and works very well for certain uh, disease states that we just mentioned. For example, HUS and PNH, where you have inappropriate immune responses. But I'll tell you, there's a whole slew of new complement inhibitors coming down the pike, and they're being tried in ANCA, uh, so vasculitides, um, and a whole wide range of other types of um, complement diseases. And so just so you're aware of that, this is all I'm going to touch on, but just so you know that there's this whole world out there of really targeting the innate immune system through complement. Okay, I'm going to move on now from complement to some of the um, pattern recognition receptors that I think a lot of people have heard about but are um, come in many flavors. So again, we're just going to hit the highlights of these. One thing I want to point out with pattern recognition receptors, very much like I've already mentioned at the beginning, is that these, as the name states, are recognizing patterns, and they're recognizing patterns of non-self. Those can come in multiple ways. So one is pathogen-associated molecular patterns. There's, these have multiple names. This is one of the classic ones, meaning these are molecules that are foreign. I mentioned lipopolysaccharide is one of them already, but flagellin is another one. Even CPG in a hypomethylated form can be another. Uh, double-stranded RNA. These are molecules that are inherently recognized as something different than self through these receptors, different types of receptors. But in the same way that you can recognize something as totally different, you can also recognize something that is your own self molecule, but is being displayed at the wrong place at the wrong time or in a wrong form. And the reason to do that is potentially as a backup system in case the bugs get very smart and outwit us or we just the immune system missed these cues, 
Um, and these are called damage-associated molecular patterns or DAMPs. So you hear these two terms, PAMPs and DAMPs. So for example, when a cell dies, they can release or expose molecules that are not normally seen by the innate immune system, either by the molecules or the cells. Um, a good example of this is uric acid crystals. Uric acid is a self molecule and high concentration, i.e. potentially with high amounts of cell death, you actually get crystal forms of these and that triggers a particular set of uh, pattern recognition receptors. We've also already talked about loss of normal self molecules, sialic acid being a good one. For example, that complement can, uh, can recognize. Something just to point out, and I like this slide, um, although it has a couple of errors, it has some very nice imagery of how different types of innate immune cells and even adaptive immune cells can express different types and um, display different pattern recognition receptors. Okay, so let's go into a little bit more detail about some of these. And the first point is to, um, to state that really you have pattern recognition receptors surveying across every kind of uh, topological component of, the immune, of your um, body meaning you have cell surface receptors like toll-like receptors, which are situated, for example, on um, phagocytes like your macrophages. And they're there and they can sense extracellular bacteria, viruses, fungi, these kinds of things. And they can also detect when something's been endocytosed. So something that's been taken up or phagocytosed. But similarly, we have a, a system of receptors in the cytosol themselves, right? So toll-like receptors wouldn't be able to detect if something had gotten past them and gotten into the cytosol. Instead, you have other receptors there that really are trying to, um, what I like to say, survey for the sanctity of the cytosol. Meaning if you have a bacteria that's punched its way through this membrane or through the endosome and gotten out into the cytosol, your toll-like receptors now are no longer helpful, but you have nod-like receptors, rigai-like receptors, um, these cytosolic DNA sensors, which you could imagine would be very powerful for detecting viruses, right, which are uh, readily get into the cytosol. And so you really have um, receptors all over the place that are able to detect different um, types of triggers in different compartments of the cells. So let's start um, with talking about toll-like receptors, one of the I think um, best studied uh, pattern recognition receptors where we understand the most. Um, they really come in many flavors, and this is only some of them, but it really highlights the wide variety of molecules that can be recognized by toll-like receptors and how these um, classify into very large groups of uh, pa potential pathogens. So for example, this TLR2 mo uh, molecule should be able to detect almost all gram-positive bacteria, whereas your TLR4 is going to detect all your gram-negative. So you can see with just two receptors, you've hit large swaths of all the bacterium that are out there. And then similarly, you have um, toll-like receptors in your endosomes that might be able to detect phagocytosed viruses. Um, again, by the nature of what these receptors are detecting. So there's about 13 of these uh, between humans and mice. They've been studied in both uh, species and they're slightly different in terms of each, but with very large overlap. Remember, these are germline encoded, as I mentioned already, for the innate immune receptors. And they're detecting essentially bacteria, fungi, uh, viruses. You really can hit all the major classes. I will point out what's missing here are helminths. We don't have a good receptor for, for example, a toll-like receptor that detects helminth infections. And we can talk a little bit about why that might be at the end. So these specificities are subject to natural selection. And so you can imagine that a receptor that detects pretty much almost all gram-negative bacteria is a very powerful receptor to have. 
Um, and again, as I already mentioned, these toll-like receptors are not universally expressed by all cell types. It's really different ones are, detect, are um, expressed on different cell types and therefore able to detect different types of pathogens. Um, it also, I think, naturally points out once we understood these receptors and some of their ligands, how it's possible for the innate immune system to also get tripped up sometimes. So for example, TLR9 recognizes um, the uh, nucleotides, DNA, CG, with some flanking other sequences that are hypomethylated. And you can imagine that it's possible for these molecule, these moieties to really be present also on your own DNA. And DNA being a potentially um, potent trigger of disease states like lupus. You can see how some of this has um, potentially gives, gives you also insights into pathophysiology of other diseases. Um, just as a very basic and very quick um, survey, I just wanted to make sure you knew that these receptors, these, these variety of receptors I just talked about, toll-like receptors, really go funnel down into two signaling pathways, MITE88 and TRIF, and those are molecules you should know. And they have multiple names, you know, in the immune system, we love to do that. Um, but these are probably two of the most common. So MITE88 and TRIF signal slightly differently, and those actually can dictate the type of um, uh, and the immune response that you get right, in terms of pro-inflammatory cytokine production versus type 1 interferons, but there's a lot of overlap too. So TLRs are associated, as I've already mentioned, with a number of diseases. Um, I won't poll you guys this time in the interest of time, but for example, underactivity of toll-like receptors can result in particular uh, susceptibility to infection. And interestingly, um, it's actually much more specific than we might think. Although if you knock out, for example, MITE88, which really does knock out a majority of toll-like receptor signaling, then you have more broad, broad spectrum kind of um, bacterial type infections. But for example, mutations in, in inactivating mutations in toll-like receptor three is really classically associated with HSV encephalitis. So very particular disease, not every type of viral infection. The other thing to know once you understand how these molecules work and how they're triggered is that, you know, once we understood that, these are very powerful triggers of innate immunity that then go on to induce adaptive immunity. And that's what we'll talk about in the second lecture. I will just mention it here. So, but, so many of these mimics of PAMPs, for example, that activate toll-like receptors have been developed for vaccine adjuvants. Um, and then, and here's some of them just as an example. Some of them are in clinical use to induce inflammation in a way that we still probably don't totally understand. An example of that's Aldara, uh, so which is a TLR7 agonist that's applied to the skin. Um, and then excessive activation, so overactivation of toll-like receptors is also thought to be part of, for example, septic shock. So again, very much like what we talked about with complement, you can have under or overactivity. And then once you also understand how that works, you can intervene. All right, I'm going to move on to nod-like receptors. There will be time to talk about questions for pattern recognition receptors in, in a few minutes, so please save your questions for them. So nod-like receptors also come in many flavors. I think this slide is probably outdated by now, but I like it because it's got a very beautiful imagery of how these have kind of almost Lego block-like um, uh, domains that can be mixed and matched and used in different ways to make different types of receptors. The nod-like receptors, again, as I mentioned, are cytosolic not on the um, detecting things on the cell surface or the endosomes. And they're triggered by numerous stimuli. So PAMPs as well, just like toll-like receptors, but different ones now often, and DAMPs. So this is another group of molecules that's very um, tuned in to when something has gone wrong with the self. There's loss of homeostasis, damage, 
or transformation like when you have with cancer. And so now you get triggering of non-like detectors. And in some ways, I think of this as a backup detection system, right? So if a, a bug has been able to evade uh, your toll-like receptors on the surface, maybe the non-like receptor system would be able to detect it. For example, through membrane disruption, NALP3, which has um, now been renamed NLRP3, can detect when the membrane, the cell membrane has been disrupted um, and poten potentially through leakage of potassium. And that helps it helps the cell know, right, that, the, that the something has come in, has invaded. So these uh, nod-like receptors initiate uh, activation of something called an inflammasome. And inflammasomes are really these uh, large um, molecular structures inside the cell, in the cytosol again. And here's an image of one that has your nod-like receptor, multiple copies of your nod-like receptor, along with other molecules that are necessary for inflammasome uh, kind of aggregation triggering. And that is ASC, which is an adapter, and then an effector arm, which in this case is caspase one shown here. And again, you have multiple copies of these and they get activated very much like what we saw with a complement cascade. You now have an active form of it when you have this aggregate that gets triggered. And now this active caspase one can start activating other molecules and induce uh, downstream inflammation. So for example, um, two very potent pro-inflammatory cytokines, IL-1 beta and IL-18, are synthesized um, actually in a pro-form where they're not active. And they require a cleavage by caspase-1 to become active. And actually through a pore that gets formed called uh, through gasdermin are secreted outside the cell and can induce the inflammation that we associate with these two molecules. For example, IL-1 um, has many potent inflammatory responses, including fever. Um, so, and just to note how things work together in synergy across the innate immune system, the synthesis of these molecules like IL-1 and IL-18 are actually triggered uh, from triggering of other pattern recognition, pattern recognition receptors like toll-like receptors. So you can see how they work together. Um, just so you know, caspase-1 is not the only um, uh, caspase that's part of inflammasomes and caspase-11 is also important and that uh, activation of these cytokines is not the only function of inflammasomes. There's actually a form of cell death, an inflammatory form of cell death called pyroptosis that also can be induced when you have activation of inflammasomes. Okay, so I want to just touch on again some of the diseases associated with either over or under activation of nod-like receptors. And I'm just going to again hit the highlights very quickly because uh, we are running out of time. Um, gout is actually an inflammatory response to uric acid crystals, which activate the NLRP3 inflammasome. Uh, and IL-1 is a major driver of pathology in these diseases. And so as you might expect, inhibition of IL-1 has been a very powerful way of inhibiting the inflammation that might be associated with gout and other inflammasome uh, um, disorders. There are genetic forms uh, that of in, uh, inflam inflammasomopathies or other names that people have come up with really categorized under the term auto-inflammatory diseases where you have overactivation of inflammasomes. For example, NALP3 um, is associated with a cryopyranopathy where again, you have too much IL-1, you can inhibit the IL-1 and actually help these children. Crohn's disease is another example where you have NOD2 activation um, and other uh, potential innate inflammatory responses. And there you can have, and that's shown here, uh, an infection that's really, uh, sorry, bugs that are really triggering this type of inflammatory process in the gut and cause disease there. 
Conversely, and I won't touch on this too much, um, and I don't know if Carrie will, you can have an immunodeficiency associated with loss of a particular nod-like receptor called C2TA. This molecule functions very differently than what I've been talking about so far for pattern recognition receptors, so I won't talk about it here. I just want to point out, because the nomenclature can sometimes get confusing, that autoimmunity and autoinflammation are not necessarily the same thing. Um, so often when we talk about autoimmunity, we're talking about disease states like uh, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, type 1 diabetes, multiple sclerosis. And these are driven by inappropriate adaptive immune responses. We have very clear targets of inappropriate antibodies or T cell receptors targeting self molecules. So autoinflammatory disorders, in contrast, really are an innate inflammatory response. Again, it's inappropriate. It's overactivation. But you don't have the same kind of, often you don't have autoantibodies. Um, you really have uh, inappropriate activation of it, uh, these innate immune cells like myeloid cells, granulocytes. And the, the um, diseases in terms of how we, how we target them, how we treat them are different, right? And how we diagnose them is even different, right? So um, for these autoinflammatory disorders, depending on which category you're falling under, you can be looking for the cytokines, you can be looking for genetic mutations and the pathways that we know are associated with the, the pathology we see. Whereas in autoimmune disease, we're often looking for autoantibodies, autoreactive T cells, those kinds of things. Okay. I, I'm sorry, I cut off discussion on that one because I think I'm running a little bit behind. Um, but I will stop here just for a minute to take if there's any questions about anything that I've talked about. We're going to be moving on now um, to other uh, pattern recognition receptors. So before we do that, if there's anything about nod-like receptors or tool-like receptors that people wanted to bring up, I'd love questions. Stephanie, there's an interesting question that um, I'll just read it uh, yeah. instead of the time takes to Perfect. get the student dead. Sure. Um, the question is, is it possible that this vulnerability of populations to certain types of infections um, I'll cut the question a little bit short because of polymorphic variants in TLRs or other molecules of pattern recognition receptors. Yeah, so great question. Absolutely. So these are being um, in many different types of diseases. These have been sequenced. Um, it's a very it's they've been sequenced across a whole um, variety of states, not just infectious disease states. Um, but for example, um, I, I mentioned that polymorphism in TLR3 that actually renders it no longer active, right? Um, so that's an inactivating mutation. There's also polymorphisms that have been associated with overactivation. So you can have over or under activation of all of these molecules um, that are associated with particular disease states. Um, like it's been looked at with um, uh, also autoimmunity, uh, alloimmunity, so response responses, inappropriate responses potentially to other molecules that are non-self that are coming in through transplantation. So the answer is yes, it's so broad that you'd have to be, you'd want to look up the particular disease state, but for example, toll-like receptors are often molecules that get um, identified in that way. So, so great question. Thing also asked in the same question about COVID, and there's actually mm -hmm. a lot of mutations in TLR3 and type 1 interferon, uh, which have been published by John Lauren Casanova as susceptibility to COVID, just to... Right. So you can imagine that the polymorphisms that we're talking about don't necessarily need to be completely inactivating, but you could have, again, partial change in the um, responsiveness of that receptor, either over or under, depending on what the disease state is. 
and that that would really that would essentially lead to the, um, the, the let's say if it's under um, activity right the failure to trigger the necessary innate immune response that you need but similarly you can imagine if something gets triggered too strongly or isn't turned off quickly enough you get persistent prolonged and maybe hyperinflammation and as we all know with covid hyperinflammation can be a problem as well so great point Shiv. thank you uh, Andy, you want to ask the next two questions? Sure. So there's a question that you touched on briefly, but it's uh, very interesting. Do cells recognize or respond to self-DNA, such as DNA coming from dying cells? Um, or, uh, so can that lead to autoimmunity? And Right. If you don't mind waiting, it's a great question. We will touch on it in one slide coming up. The answer is absolutely yes. You can unfortunately recognize self-DNA. The immune system can. Um, there are many mechanisms in place to prevent that. And so those, those pathways essentially have to be overcome. And so often with autoimmunity, what I think about is that you have to reach a certain threshold. You, if you think of, um, people talk about a Swiss cheese model. Um, I think the airlines might've been the ones who coined this where you don't wanna have any kinds of errors. You don't wanna have errors in your immune system, for example, to self molecules. And so with a Swiss cheese model, you block potential um, pathways from occurring and you block them sequentially so that you really have to meet multiple thresholds in order to have disease. And that's probably what happens. And one of the thresholds that has to happen, for example, with lupus, is your ability to recognize, unfortunately, self-DNA, potentially because it's in the wrong place at the wrong time. It hasn't been properly uh, concealed in the ways that the immune system has also learned to do. Great question. You had a second one? Oh, sorry. MBL deficiency. Do you yep. have about it? So, Essentially, every pathway I've described um, has been identified as some kind of immunodeficient state, um, often not commonly, but uh, mannose binding lectin, I think, is the question that was asked. You can have absolutely polymorphisms in MBL. You can have differing levels. If you just screen a whole wide population, um, you know, healthy people, they have varying levels of MBL. It actually changes during different states of inflammation as well. And so you can imagine that if you are deficient in that one pathway, right, because of an inactivating mutation, let's say, um, you may be susceptible, your complement system may be blind to seeing those particular lectins that it's um, in a healthy person would be able to detect. What's beautiful though about the immune system, in particular, you see this with the innate immune system, and I mentioned it briefly, but I probably didn't spend enough time explaining it, is that you have backup systems. So often patients um, really don't have widespread disease because you have other ways of activating, for example, complement, right? So the um, alternative pathway of complement is another way you could activate to a bacterium that potentially your MBL pathway would have recognized, but now in someone who has a uh, mutation wouldn't be able to. So you don't, um, even with like fulminant, like loss of complete loss of a particular component of the complement cascade, where you have really insufficient complement activity, you have very limited disease, um, back, uh, different types of pathogens that can invade because you have so many other backup systems to protect you. Okay, any other questions that I should touch on? Andy, you want to touch? Um, there's a, there are a lot, <laughs> so we can't pick them all. Um, so but there's one that related to COVID that maybe we could just touch on. Can we think of, sti of stimulating innate immunity using viral PAMPs periodically for long immunity from COVID? Um, maybe that maybe the question is not exactly clear, but I think it's um, 
it's you're trying to stimulate innate immunity as a therapeutic or maybe an yeah. induction of long-term adaptive immunity. It's a good thought. And, you know, induction of adaptive immunity is almost certainly, that is a necessary component, is that you have to stimulate innate immune system. And I will talk about that. So maybe hold it to the next lecture when we talk about adjuvants and how they work, right? Chronic stimulation, low, like low-grade chronic stimulation of your innate immune system, though, may not be a great approach uh, to protecting from COVID or other diseases. And the reason is, there's a couple of reasons. One is the innate immune system also learns um, to set its own threshold. So you can have um, sensitization. Um, you can become kind of desensitized to chronic stimulation of particular pattern recognition receptors, for example, and you don't want to, then you kind of induced a pseudo immunodeficient state. So you wouldn't want that. But like, for example, if you trigger innate immunity and you have a lot of type one interferons always around, first of all, you wouldn't feel too good. Um, you know, that is what in part makes you feel like those, those uh, cold like symptoms where you feel achy and unhappy. Um, but secondly, they are associated with their own pathology. So I think probably you wouldn't want to induce that in a chronic way. You really want to have your immune system primed and ready to go when something comes in and triggers it. But using it acutely, for example, during vaccination is a great idea and we'll talk about that. Stephanie, we can come back to the rest of these questions if we have time later on. Sure, that sounds great. Okay, let me move on. Yeah. Okay. All right, whoops, yes, because we have a couple of more um, groups that we really do need to cover in terms of pattern recognition receptors. And again, most of these have one slide. They do have references, so you can look them up if you want more information. There's beautiful reviews on all of these because these, these have been very well studied. So the RIGI-like receptors, there's a couple of them. Um, and again, the names are not so important unless this is what you're really focusing in on, but um, they really are, are there to, again, detect things that are awry in the cytosol. Um, and here's a good example of where this is. You can, you'll notice that there's this weird structure down at the bottom, which is actually the mitochondria. Interestingly, many of these molecules are situated there. That's where they hang out, checking for things in the cytosol. Um, so MAVs, RIGI is shown here, where you have a virus that's entered now, and you get, again, oligomerization is very important for these pattern recognition receptors. We talked about that with inflammasomes, and here that's true as well. And then once these get um, triggered and dimerization happens, you then trigger now an inflammatory cascade, which has many of the signaling components that are, are true across multiple types of pattern recognition receptors. What's important to realize is that this um, group of receptors is really uh, primed and ready to recognize nucleotides, okay? And that makes sense given it seems like it's evolved to recognize viral infection. So for example, double-stranded RNA is not something that we would normally have in our cell cytosol, um, but it can be an obligatory replication intermediate for many RNA viruses. They have to form that in order to be able to produce. And so the immune system, again, has found that pattern as a way of recognizing infection. Other, mo uh, other modifications of the RNA that are different than self, for example, this triphosphate 5 prime end, um, which is capped on human mRNA, is exposed on certain viral uh, viral RNAs, and that can be recognized. Other forms as well, different things that are unusual about the RNA or even DNA has been recognized to be um, Rigai-like receptors. Okay, that's all I'm gonna say about the RLRs. Um, again, very briefly talking about the cytosolic DNA sensors. Um, so these are an analogous group that just now recognizes mostly DNA rather than RNA. And again, are in the cytosol, again, probably you know, have evolved to recognize viral invasion. 
right? And here's a bunch of different ones, all listed on this nice slide, uh, things that can be recognized, different patterns of these uh, viruses that can be recognized. Um, interestingly, there's a molecules associated with these CDSs, if you will, or cytosolic DNA sensors that help different, uh, again, synergy with across different um, pattern recognition receptors. So for example, uh, DNA that gets into the cytosol from a virus can actually be turned into RNA that can be recognized by rigi-like receptors. But there's other types of receptors like AIM2, which can recognize double-stranded DNA and actually induce another form of an inflammasome. So you can see how there's themes across these pattern recognition receptors. I think probably the most potent and best studied um, group member of the cytosolic DNA sensors is CGAS. And I'll talk about that one in its own slide in a minute. But what's important to recognize is that all these pathways, really the downstream effector pathway that results from them is type one interferons. And we'll talk about potentially why that is in a minute. Okay, so let me just touch on CGAS. So um, CGAS is another pattern recognition receptor um, that um, not, it's not shown exactly to scale in this diagram, but I like it because it's a nice simple diagram that can recognize um, uh, viral infection but invasion, but has also been pointed out to be a, an important part potentially of recognizing transform cells, for example, with cancer. So CGAS itself is actually a DNA-dependent cyclase. It forms this intermediate called CGAMP. And CGAMP, which is um, uh, this molecule shown here, triggers something called STING. STING, again, the topology doesn't matter so much unless you're really studying this, but STING is actually a molecule that's on the ER uh, membrane. But again, it'll recognize this intermediate and then trigger. And when it triggers, again, you get this type 1 interferon pathway. Um, and so again, it's... Um, a very important molecule to understand in terms of sensing both DNA viruses, but also um, in, in transformed cells, so cancerous cells. Oh, I, I'm sorry. My type 1 interferon slide is not showing because I, I, I cut it because of time. But let me just mention very briefly, the type 1 interferons have a very important role to play. And they've been highlighted, I think, with the COVID pandemic. Very important role to play in terms of protecting the cell, your cells. So first of all, all of these pathways hopefully induce local type 1 interferon that then protects other neighboring cells from getting infected. But you also upregulate a whole set of receptors that can break down or stop translation of different viral molecules. So you really just halt the viral infection in its track. Um, but again, type 1, dysregulated type 1 interference can cause disease. So you really do need to uh, titrate this response in a, in a controlled way. All right. So I want to come back to, oops, sorry, at the very end, I think this is one of my last slides. One of the uh, questions I asked at the very beginning for a short discussion. So I mentioned listeria infection as maybe a, a good example of a pathogen, so bacterium that comes in and, and invades. So what kind of non-self patterns do you think are detected during listeria infections? And by non-self patterns, I can mean anything from something on the bacterium itself to something that's in your own body, a self molecule like a damp that's released. Any thoughts on this? So you maybe put it in the chat. And Andy and Shiv can just read them if um, they are, are being uh, listed in the chat box. Yeah, I'm looking. Thank you. So far, no answers. There are lots of questions in the past. LPS, TLR, LPS, glycans, flagellin, TNF, DNA, RNA, so, TLRs. 
So remember that this is a gram-positive bacterium, a little bit of a weird bacterium, right? And it's also an invasive bacterium. So it gets inside the cells. It's actually able to invade you, uh, your cell, and and get and even if it gets phagocytosis, it's actually able to also in, uh, escape from the phagosome. So what other kinds of patterns would that uh, produce? Somebody's mentioned tachoic acid, uh, damps, nods, CDS. I mean, they're not all talking about the patterns themselves. The Okay, that's okay. This is an easier one maybe to have as a discussion when we're all together. Um, but I think you're hitting the highlights here, right? So let me just give you the answers and we'll move on to the other questions that people have. So um, so remember, this is, a like I said, it's a, it's a flagellated bacterium, it's gram-positive, and it's intracellular. So it induces a whole set of different types of patterns that can be recognized. So when it gets phagocytosed and escapes into the cytosol, that can um, activate, for example, nod-like receptors, uh, it has peptidoglycan, which is a toll-like receptor ligand. Flagellin activates TLR5. Um, different um, uh, molecules that punch holes in membranes can be recognized. Um, PAMPs that get actually into the cytosol itself because now the bacterium has escaped can also be recognized. And even, and I think this was pointed out, even the bacterial nucleic acids when, um, you know, maybe the bacteriums are dying, right? They can be recognized as well. So you can... What's important about this is that tolic, uh, there's multiple pattern recognition receptors here listed of these different classes, and they can recognize the same pathogen, and they don't necessarily need to recognize exactly the same PAMP or DAMP. And so again, you have backup systems to your backup systems, and that's just the point I wanted to point make from this. Ah, here's my antiviral state. I'm sorry. So this came out of order. That was my fault when I put it there. So I've already mentioned this, but these are some of the molecules that I mentioned uh, that help you defend from the viruses. So sorry that got placed in the wrong place. Um, so these um, CDS, these um, uh, cytosolic DNA sensors and disease, let's come back to these. So you can have um, multiple disease states again that are over or under activity of these molecules. So for example, autoimmune diseases have been linked to many different pattern recognition receptors. Um, and for example, I think a good example is lupus um, has, has been one that's been very heavily studied. And actually over and under activity of multiple different pattern recognition receptors are important and complement as well. And that was mentioned when we talked about complement, right? Auto-inflammatory diseases, again, we mentioned these when we talked about nod-like receptors, right? These can also be driven by um, overactivity, for example, of particular CDSs. Um, and then these type one interferonopathies Remember when we, the question was raised about using maybe triggers that get you into a, um, a protective, potentially protective state where you have type 1 interferons, right? But uh, over in production of type 1 interferons actually can be associated with particular disease states. And these are often disease states where you have not appropriately either gotten rid of, for example, we talked about self-DNA or other molecules that are now chronically triggering these, these pattern recognition receptors. And you get what is... Um, uh, they've been grouped under this term, the type 1 interferonopathies, because the downstream signaling winds up in a lot of type 1 interferon production, which is also actually associated with lupus um, disease as well. Okay. So some closing questions, and then we can get to everyone else's question, is how does the innate immune system recognize helminths? I don't have an answer for you. Uh, the leading theory is that it's, um, we don't have a particular PAMP that's been identified on helminths that really by itself is a great trigger of some of these pattern recognition receptors, but the damage that helminths induce can be recognized. And so that may be how this happens. 
Um, and another question to think about, again, these are not questions we're going to have answers for, but these are really important questions to understand in terms of health, is how do pattern recognition receptors recognize commensal bacteria? And if they do, why don't we all have inflammation all the time? Okay, and so a lot of this has to do with um, having the right receptor at the right place at the right time. So for example, commensal bacteria, when they're inside your gut, are, there's, a, there's actually a layer of mucus and other um, types of uh, ways of di disturbing the interaction between pattern recognition receptors and those bacteria. You're really making a barrier between those two. But when commensal bacteria breach that barrier and actually get into your body, they're no longer potentially helpful bacteria. They can be harmful. And now they're recognized. And so, for example, toe-like receptors are often expressed on the surface of the epithelium away from the luminal side of the, the gut. Right? So these are ways that we um, have evolved to be able to be kind of in homeostasis with our own bacteria. Okay. So the very last two slides are here just for reference, but they, they really beautifully summarize, um, again, from the textbook that many of you are using, some of these uh, pattern recognition receptors and how they operate. All right, with that, we'd love to have um, a quick set of maybe a quick discussion and break, but I think I'll leave it up to you, Shiv and Andy, to tell me how much time is left for this first lecture before we break and then move on to the next one. We can go on for five or six minutes if you want. Uh, there, there are questions about TLR7 and TLR8, what's the mm -hmm. difference in specificity? Okay, important question. Um, it's a confusing one um, because the if you look through the literature on this, the history of this is a little bit confusing in terms of we've we've learned a lot about how toll-like receptors operate by doing mouse studies. So genetic models where we've been able to eliminate or, or um, disrupt and see what happens in mouse systems, right? We've learned a lot of, similarly from primary immunodeficiencies where people have lost functionality of particular pattern recognition receptors. So those two avenues have helped us understand that. Tolegra 7 and 8 um, definitely have overlapping uh, specificity. And so these are for, um, let me see if I go back, sorry. Let me see if I can go back. Uh, let's see, what slide would that be? So single-stranded RNA. Yeah, let me show you here. Oh, why isn't it going backwards? Here. So here, so you have seven here listed and eight here listed separately. They're both recognizing single-stranded RNA in the endosome, right? And that's important because that's where these molecules are localized. Um, and the amoides, so for example, amiquimod is a, is a molecule that's a drug that's actually been developed to trigger um, these molecules, although I will say amiquimod was known to function before we knew it was a TLR7 ligand and how it actually functions. Um, but there's very particular um, kind of sequences of single-stranded RNA that trigger these. And to a large degree, there's a lot of overlap between these two. But there have been differences in terms of mouse expression of TLR8 versus human, and that has caused some confusion. In general, I think of them um, pretty much overlapping. Um, but most of the studies, for example, in, in the mouse system, have utilized looking through at TLR7 and the function of TLR7 in the recognition of these single-stranded RNAs. Hopefully that answers your question. So there's a question here about what are the key differences between type 1 interferons and pro-inflammatory cytokines? Since these are big differences, maybe you want to answer this. Yeah. Um, so again, let me see if I can get to, I'll see, I skip some of these slides. Um, really great questions um, and big question because it's a lot. Um, so pro-inflammatory cytokines, 
um, I don't often love that term because it's so broad as to almost not mean anything. <laughs> There's things that we that we typically lump under type one interferon. I'm sorry, under uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines. These are things like IL-1, uh, TNF, those kinds of molecules. And we will talk a little bit in the next session about what those molecules do. They induce things like fever. They activate different cell types of the innate immune system. Um, they can activate your epithelium. Um, they also induce um, changes in molecules that I won't touch on too much, but molecules on, um, on epithelium that help cells get to places. So meaning you need, let's say you have lots of neutrophils circulating in your blood, you need them to get to the site of infection, right? And so molecules like um, these pro-inflammatory cytokines can help set up the flags, the signals, um, that help get cells into sites and even help cells get out of sites like dendritic cells, which we'll talk about in the next lecture. So they really do a lot of different things. Um, anything under pro-inflammatory cytokines, Shiv, that I should have mentioned there? No, I, I think the key difference about antiviral state and being the opposite of it is helpful for them to know that type 1 interferons of antiviral state, interferon gamma is not really an interferon from that point of view. 